we continue with the ministry of God's Word, you know where we're going. Go back to Exodus. And we're coming to a different sort of passage than what we've encountered. Thus far, we've been uh, in passages that are instructional. Um, they're historical narrative, a record of things. This morning, we come to something that is less frequent in the Word of God. And unless, you know, we think of the Psalms in particular, but there are places in the course of God's, the history of God's people that are punctuated with songs of celebration. Some of you will remember all the way back when I first came, we preached through Judges, and Judges chapter 5 was one such point. Uh, Deborah's song, as it's often called, we could think of Hannah's song, uh, song of celebration to God and Mary's Magnificat. Well, this morning we are at a song of celebration on the other side of the sea. When it seemed impossible, God has delivered his people. So let us turn to the book of Exodus chapter 15 as we consider this song of praise, a song of Moses that the children of Israel sang with him. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he is cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the reed sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who? is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear of it and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be in dismay. The mighty men of Moab, trebling, will take hold of them, and the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea. And the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out and 
with went out after her with timbrels and with dances and miriam answered them sing to the lord for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea amen praise be to god for his glorious word let us pray together O lord as we come to this powerful moment in the midst of what is largely a a history book, a record of your dealings with nations, particularly your dealings with Israel and delivering them out of Egypt. As we go forward, as you lead them in the wilderness land, Father, we come to this, this mighty, glorious song of celebration. Father, it reminds us of why we gather week by week to sing your praises, to celebrate your victories in our lives, uh, the ways in which you have delivered us out of the hand of the evil one. Oh God, as we look at this song sung of old, uh, uh, a great celebration of the church of old, Lord, we pray that you would instruct our hearts, that we would see uh, our connections to it, how it points forward, and to the greater things that we celebrate, and indeed, uh, if they had cause for celebration, and they surely did, how much more do we? Lord, bless us now in the hearing of your word. Bless for it, the preaching of your word. May your spirit be at work both in the, the preaching and the hearing. And may Christ be exalted and magnified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm pretty certain that most, probably all of you, have been at a an event where there's a crowd that gets very excited and very loud. Perhaps it's a football game. Your your team scores a a winning touchdown with 15 seconds left on the clock. For others, it's it's been a concert of a, a popular band or. Sometimes it's political rallies and so forth. College football games can often generate a tremendous amount of enthusiasm, not only for the student body there, but for the alumni present or watching on the television. Uh, the band, the cheerleaders are used to stir up the crowd, and then there's that moment when the, when the band plays the school song and students and alumni alike shout forth celebrating their college parents at little league games or soccer matches can get quite animated and quite loud and quite excitable we could go on and on but i'll stop and ask you what gets you loud what gets you excited what what really stirs your emotions we were just reminded in the homily earlier that we have feelings what stirs your feelings what what motivates you what gets you shouting what gets you jumping up and down what is it that you really care about what moves you in the very core of your being surely we all can think of some things well, what we have before us this morning is a song. It's titled in uh, the printing of this particular Bible. It's given a heading. It's not inspired, but it's a song of Moses. It's, it's not an inappropriate heading, though, at this point. For this is Moses and the children. Moses leading the children of Israel to sing a song that I think from the fact that Moses is the prophet of God and the leader of God, people that he taught them and thus the song of Moses he he leads Israel on the other side of the Reed Sea what's the occasion remember how it was they they had the you know, the sea before them and Egypt behind them and and God has brought them not only out of slavery in in Egypt but he has completely destroyed their enemies uh, who had set out to grab them and take them back to slavery, back to the shackles, back to the brick kilns. God has completely destroyed them. Uh, the walls of water that provided them passage have collapsed upon their enemies, and they God has drowned them. 
just as God promised back in Exodus 14:13, the Egyptians that you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and of Israel has proved to his people that he is their God. He is the Lord, the covenant faithful Lord, and he has delivered them. And oh, how they sang. This is surely a great lesson for us all. The Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel have proved himself to us. Indeed, the fulfillment of what these things are but foreshadowing and pointing to, the Lord has delivered us from by his Son at the cross. He has secured a salvation, delivering us from the, the shackles of all shackles, those of sin and out of the bondage of Satan and from the kingdom of darkness. And he has brought us into the kingdom of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only has he done that, but he has by his power, delivered us. He has, as we heard in the assurance of salvation, our sins are propitiated for. God's wrath is spent on Christ. God is satisfied that the penalty for our sin has been paid. He has destroyed our enemy, Satan. He has destroyed sin. He has conquered death and the grave. And he has canceled the power of sin in our lives. And indeed, this is true for all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we, more joyfully than these, as great as their joy was, we, more joyfully, with, more, uh, with, with a louder song, with, with robust singing, we praise our God. Indeed, it should be throughout every day that we live. And even more so as we gather on the Lord's day to worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God has done great things for us. We're going to look at this song in five parts. Sing to the Lord. We're going to find that in verse 1, but scattered throughout the focus of who the song is upon. Uh, we're going to look at the singing of the Lord's salvation, the singing of the Lord's might, uh, the singing of the Lord's uniqueness. And sing then the singing that took place, singing and celebrating the dread of the Lord that fell upon the nations. And then we will, in the conclusion, look at the refrain that is provided. So begin with, sing to the Lord. A little, uh, a little more background as we go into it. We'll come to the, the point of this first point, sing to the Lord. This song is known as the song of the sea amongst the Hebrews. And it's the very first song of the Hebrew people that's recorded in the scripture. And its focus is on the Lord's great salvation. You think about them being in slavery in Egypt. It'd be very hard for them to, to think of reasons to sing, to celebrate. They're oppressed. They're burdened. The whip is at their back. The taskmaster looms over them. Much like when we are in sin. The world goes about, as we once did with the world, about in, in sin. And, oh, oh, they gather and they, they have their concerts and you know, other events. And they, there's great celebration. And yet, it's, it's a, ultimately, it's a joyless. And it's an empty celebration. It, it's vapid. That is, it's like a vapor. It's that moment. And then, then they move on, seeking yet another moment to celebrate. But for Israel, this is a great, great moment and it is focused upon the Lord's great salvation that they have just experienced. He's delivered them out of slavery. He's delivered them out of a land of darkness and he's delivered them out of death. We have sung another song that makes much the same celebration, Psalm 106. We've returned to that over the course of about four months as it celebrates the events of the Exodus. As you read throughout the scriptures each year, 
as I hope you're doing. Um, I'm struck this year because I'm preaching through Exodus. How often the theme of Exodus shows up in the scriptures. It's everywhere. Have you ever noticed that? How the Exodus is mentioned over and over and over again. This, this is a monumental event. This book that is too often overlooked and ignored is something that the scriptures celebrates frequently. Because as I've said to you before, the, the great theme of Exodus, it's, it's not just this of Israel coming out of uh, Egypt. It's pointing to the reality that God who drove Adam and Eve out of the garden and away from him because of sin is at work to bring about an Exodus to bring us back into his presence, back into fellowship and communion with him, which will be culminated in heaven when we shall be there, free from sin and glorified bodies, spirit and body united, fully receiving all that Christ has purchased for us. And there the church in all its immensity, uh, as, as God promised Abraham, more numerous than the sand upon the seashores. And we shall sing a song beyond all songs that the church has ever sung. If you want to look at a couple of places where the Exodus is celebrated, Psalm 106 I've mentioned. Look at Psalm 78. Look at Psalm 136. And then as you continue reading through the scriptures, look for the Exodus. I mean, we're, we're looking for Christ, aren't we? And if we find the Exodus, that should remind us of Christ as well. Well, the first thing that I want you to notice, perhaps the most important thing about this song is, to whom is it directed? Who is being addressed? In the Hebrew, this, this psalm is divided into stanzas. Um, I'm breaking them out differently in our sermon. Um, but in the Hebrew, there's three stanzas, 1 through 6, 7 through 11, and 12 through 16. And each ends with, Lord, O Lord, O covenant faithful Lord. And so we see there the direction. But we find it right at the beginning. As the song begins, then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord, to the covenant faithful Lord, and spoke saying, I will sing to the Lord. There's a resolve, there's a commitment of the heart of the whole being to sing praises to the Lord. And then, as I said, the stances keep returning to the Lord. There's something else that's interesting at the end of the, each stanzas, all these three stanzas, as they're organized in the Hebrew text. And there's a, they're related to the outcome of the army of Egypt. Remember the, some of you will remember, uh, chapter 5 of Judges, the song of Deborah. There's that celebratory moment as uh, it's recounted that. Uh, she, there she, she stands over Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, and there's the refrain, there she stood, as there he lay on the ground, he lay dead, there he lay dead upon the ground, the nail through his head, and so it seems somewhat graphic, but it's the destruction of God's enemy, and you find it here too, this refrain at the end of, of verse 5, that Egypt sank like a stone. It's, it's, uh, this is, uh, this is celebratory. Our enemies, they, they went down because of God's hand. They went down like a stone at the end of verse 10. Like, they sunk like lead. And in verse 16, again, like a stone is a celebratory element. It's just like so quickly our God was able to destroy them. He brought them down so swiftly, and there was nothing that they could do. They just sank into the waters to be seen no more. These three stanzas are then followed by an epilogue, verses 17 through 18, and then, as I'm calling it, a responsive refrain in 19 through 21. It's sort of like you know, we'll sing a, a, a hymn, and then sometimes there's a refrain that repeats over and over and over again. And that's something that we find here. We can also see that near the end of each of these three stanzas, there's a relate, I'm sorry, mentioned that, the, the, uh, the refrain of the stone. We move on then in, uh, from the structure to this main point. Look at verse 1 again. 
I will sing to, this is all L-O-R-D, the covenant faithful Lord, our covenant faithful God, our God who promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has promised that we as his people, that he would visit us and that he would deliver us. And as we heard it in the scriptures, at the very time, at the very moment that God had said he would do it, he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so they sing to the Lord, each of the Israelites expressing that he or she is a part of the Hebrew community, that God has saved them. And this is their own song. Notice it says, I will sing. A lot of our hymns we sing, we are, you know, we're putting the a sec, a first person plural, but this song was written in the first person plural, our first person singular, I, I will sing, I will celebrate. Uh, each Hebrew is called to recognize they themselves have been delivered and that they are rejoicing with great joy at what God has accomplished. Today, for the church, it's, it's, this is only something that those who have been saved by God's grace can take these words up so personally as to say, I have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ went to the cross and paid for my sins. It was there that he was crucified for me. We see something of that celebration. It, it's clear that not all Israel here is, to borrow from Paul in Romans, is Israel. That out of this host, not all are of the household of faith, though they are the children of Abraham. We saw that in the book of John as well. But the resolve of each one is to sing to the Lord. All the praises are directed to the Lord. And this occurs throughout. So look at your scriptures and follow along with me. I'm going to show you how often the focus is upon the Lord. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord. And again, in the middle of the verse, your right hand, O Lord. This is repetition. And then verse 7, in the in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those. You sent forth your wrath and consumed them. Verse 8, and with the blast of your nostrils. Later on, verse 10, you blew with your wind. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord? Again, who is like you, glorious in holiness? Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand. Verse 13, you in your mercy, the people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Verse 16, by the greatness of your arm, till your people passed over, O Lord, whom you have purchased, you will bring them in into your, the mountain of your inheritance in the place, O Lord, which you have made, in your own dwelling place, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hand established. And then, of course, Marion leads him out again. Sing to the Lord. This is a very God-centered song. There's a lesson for us. Who should we sing to? We should sing to the Lord. Now, we sing some hymns that... Uh, are appropriate, uh, particularly later in the service. I think our opening hymns should be very God-centered, like this is celebrating God, rejoicing before God, singing of his attributes and of his great accomplishments, the uniqueness of who he is, exalting him as we begin our worship. And then later we do sing of the things of the Lord. We sing to remind one another of the greatness of God, of things that he has accomplished. But this, this hymn, this song, would have us to celebrate. What sort of song would you call this? What, what genre does this fall into? This is a doxology. This is a song to give glory to God. That's what doxology is about. It's a hymn of praise to honor God alone, which is indeed the purpose of our worship. Notice something. There is no praise or honor directed to Moses. Has Moses accomplished great things? 
only as an instrument in God's hand. I think of Moses' rod. You know, Moses as the rod. It's God appointed him to have that rod. But that's that's who Moses is. That's all Moses is. He's a rod. And let me borrow from Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Uh, Moses is but a crooked stick. Is he not? Even as we are. And yet he's the Lord's servant. And the Lord has struck straight blows using Moses. But Moses isn't celebrated in here. Because God has done this. And even who Moses is, is who God has made him. Remember where we began with Moses, objecting, oh, but God, I, I can't speak. I'm a stutterer or a stammer. Lord, find someone else. And yet we've seen the Lord mature and grow Moses. He's sanctified him, even as we know the promise of God is to us. But this song, this doxology is upon the Lord. Before we move on, just some applicatory question. Who alone is worthy of all of your love and your praise and your adoration? The, the world would offer you 10,000 people, politicians, movie stars. I'll go so far, products and advertisements that you should celebrate these things. Uh, to, to rejoice in these things, that, that you should look at these things, these individuals, they will satisfy you. They'll, they'll give you what you're longing for. But no, we come back to the scriptures, and it is God alone who will satisfy us. God alone who can deliver us, and indeed God alone to whom we should sing praise. Is there any mere man worthy of such praise? The, psalm, the song leaves Moses out of it. He's a mere man, though he is the Lord's instrument. And indeed, the Lord magnifies in some sense. He, he promotes Moses. But this song is about the Lord. And indeed, this should teach us to be moderate in our praise and adulation of men and women. even when they've had great accomplishments. I, I remember Dr. Morton Smith, the founding professor of Greenville Seminary, also a founding professor of Reformed Theological Seminary, a man who served the church in tremendous ways. And to this day, he, to me, he's, he's one of the most humble men I've ever met. Where We heard that, be, that Moses was the most humble man be, you know, during his days, and I, I think of Dr. Morton Smith that way, just a humble man, never a man who would want praise or adulation or exaltation for himself. And at his 80th birthday celebration, we honored him. We had a, a banquet. We, we had a celebration, and there were multiple speakers, multiple, like seven, eight, or nine speakers, you know, from someone from the student body, alumni, a professor, old friends, you know, peers, and it was interesting to me, notable to me, that everyone, as they spoke of Dr. Smith and the accomplishments of Dr. Smith, were careful because they knew the man that they gave praise to God for who Dr. Smith was. They gave praise to God for Dr. Smith had accomplished. We should live our lives that way. That if people you know, see in us some some greatness, uh, that we've accomplished something great, that our lives would have them to understand, oh, whatever I am, it is because of who God is and of what God has accomplished in me. And that's how we should view ourselves. All glory and honor to God. That's what this song, amongst other things, teaches us. Well, secondly, we want to consider... We sing of the Lord's salvation. That's what they did. They sang of the Lord's celebration. Verse 1 celebrates what God has done to Egypt's chariots and its riders. Uh, this is seen as salvation. As a song turns in, just celebrate this salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider has thrown in, he has thrown into the sea. I'll be honest with you, back in uh, my high school years, 
time when I was in a charismatic church. This was a scripture song we sang. It's one I've talked to my taught to my children. I I still sing it right now. I almost want to just start singing uh, part of this this wonderful chapter that is set to song because of the greatness of what God has done. He brought us salvation. Verse three, we see that God is celebrated as a warrior. Yes, the the covenant and. The people of God, they see that their faithful God has gone to war for his people. He has stood out at the front and brought a victory for them. Verse 4 and 5 celebrates the specific way that the Lord fought and brought a salvation for his people. Notice the language. It talks about how they, they were cast into the sea. They were drowned in the sea. The depths of the sea have covered them, and they sank like stones to the bottom of the sea. God was a great warrior, and the sea was his means of destroying their enemies. The impact on the worshipers then is interwoven throughout. The Lord has claimed as the end of the worshiper, the impact on him, the, he, he claims the Lord as his strength in the song. He says he's become my salvation. The worshiper says he is my God and I will praise him. He is my father's God and I will praise him. What a remarkable transformation for these slaves who have been surrounded by idols and indeed have in many cases worshipped idols. As we shall see, they, they've, they've drug along some of those dead idols with them who have mouths that can't speak and eyes that can't see. They, they're, they're there. They brought them along. But at this moment, their hope is not in those. Or this brief moment at least, they are celebrating God as their salvation. He is who they sing of. He has brought about this great deliverance for them. Christian, if you're a Christian, you all believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Your hope is found in Christ alone. Why? Because he has brought your salvation. He has bought your salvation. He has secured it with the shedding of his own blood. He who knew no sin became sin. He took on himself your sin. He went to the cross. He was nailed to the cross where you and I should have been nailed. He suffered under the anguish of the cross. But more than that, he suffered the anguish of the wrath of God in your place. He has become your salvation. And it is he whom you should celebrate and sing of. And in no other, celebrate that God fought for you and against your enemies and he has brought a great victory he has defeated sin and satan and the grave and he has spent his wrath for god really honestly was your enemy as a sinner and if you remain in sin god is still your enemy he is your greatest foe the book of hebrews we read it is a fearsome thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's your greatest foe unless you're in Christ. And then if you're in Christ, he's your salvation. He has conquered your foe. He has removed from you his wrath because he has spent it. It's propitiated by Christ and the Father is fully satisfied with his Son. And that is a cause for Great singing and celebration of the victory that God has accomplished. Does your heart rejoice that the Lord Jesus is your strength and your salvation? Is he the song of your heart? Is he your God? Will you give him praise in him alone? Let's just have an honest moment. Let's reflect back on our law homily right now. What is it that's in the first great commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the sober reality? There's not a day that we do that. There's, there's really not a moment that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. 
And yet the Lord is still our salvation. He still is at work in us to accomplish that. He is at work day by day through means, through suffering, through afflictions, through losses. Indeed, through all the affairs of our life, he is working in us that indeed we would love him and obey him more and more, that our love and our affection should grow for him. That should be the hallmark of your life if Christ has set you free. It is a growing love for Christ and a growing hatred for your sin. But in the midst of that process, what we call progressive sanctification, growing in holiness, our hearts can and should and must sing that the Lord is our salvation because he has accomplished it. We are justified. We are free from sin. Well, thirdly, we consider we sing of the Lord. They sing of the Lord. We sing of the Lord because of the Lord's might. Verses 6 through 10 deal with this. Previously, Moses has mentioned the hand of God. Back in chapter 3, verse 20, he talks about God's hand. Chapter 7, verse 4, he talks about God's hand. But now in this song, God's right hand is named twice. In verse 6, you see God's right hand is his hand of destruction. God extends his right hand and his holy arm, and he brings destruction. The plagues were certainly displays of God's great power. And it's said that it was by God's right hand that that destructive might of God is shown and that Egypt is shattered by God's mere hand. Now, we know that that's, children, I'll use a big word, an anthropomorphism. What that means is it's speaking about God in terms like men. We're anthropos, and it's speaking of God in ways that we would think of a man. God doesn't have a hand. Because what is it you learn in your catechism? God does not have a body like man. But you see something to the greatness of God. And, and this language is used to help us to think of God who does not have a body like man. And yet he stretches forth his power like a hand, like a mighty arm. And he brings it to bear and he shatters his enemies. Psalm 98 sings and celebrate God's right hand and holy arm is bringing salvation to his people. God's right hand dashed his enemies in pieces and he has overthrown all those who rose against him. The assault was against Israel, but more than that, it was against Israel's God because they were and are his people. This is the church as God's people. Verse 7 goes on to describe God's wrath as a, a fire that consumes stubble. Now, we, we look at the text and we see that Egypt is destroyed by waters you know, in this particular case, but it's using this simile. God's wrath is like fire that consumes stubble. Uh, that is to say that when fire goes through, what's left? Nothing. Anything that will burn, it's consumed. It's burned up. And in this sense, it was true of the children of Egypt. They're, they're gone. They're, they're, they're buried in the waters like lead, like stone. They have sunk. No one could stand before the wrath of God, not now and not on the day of judgment. Thus, the wonder and the beauty that Christ is our salvation. You remember that in the previous chapter described how God caused the wind to blow from the east and, and that he piled up the waters of the Red Sea to, into these great walls. Here we, we hear something of how they were congealed Maybe that is uh, something of what the Lord's means were, that he piled up the water. And in this song, it's interesting, because the Hebrews, as they sang, they sing of the wind as being the blast from the nostrils of God. Now, that may sound strange to you, but let me tell you something about the Hebrew language. The word for nose and nostrils is the same as the word for anger. And so when somebody is 
really red hot mad. What do you notice? You're breathing out and your nostrils are flared. It's, it's a manifestation of it. You can see on your face when somebody's really angry. In the, in the Hebrew language, it ties these together. Nostrils, flared nostrils are a picture of anger. And here in this song, it celebrates that God, by his nostrils, he blew out these winds. The winds came at his command. God does not have a nose like men. And yet this was a manifestation of his wrath as though he were a man and his nostrils were flared with a great blast of his powerful air to pile up even waters and to create the passage through the midst of the sea. And they sang of the blast from the nose of God. These singers are singing. They're celebrating that they understood the wind was from and by God. It was his wind that blew at his command and it accomplished their escape and then the destruction of Egypt. Verse 9 through 10 imports into the song uh, the thinking then of the enemy. Notice how the enemy in this situation, they they see the waters piled up on the wall. They see this passage through the sea. It's dry land. They've seen the, 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 the tail end of the Israelites making their way up onto the other side, uh, escaping as it were. They've come out with a determination to capture them, and it's expressed in their language. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoil. Remember, they've taken a great spoil from Egypt. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. And then the song of the Hebrews returns to the realities. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. A marvelous celebration. Delight and the deliverance that was accomplished by God. It's he, the Lord of creation, who blew the waters in one way, who piled them up and concealed them. However, in his mighty power, supernatural power, made them walls. Now he releases those waters that he's held back, and they come flooding in upon the Egyptians. And what was for Israel an escape now is the destruction of the armies of Egypt. Here's a great lesson for all of us. God has accomplished a greater victory when Jesus was crucified. We hear about the enemies here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to overtake them. I'll take the spoil. You know, the Israelites singing how they might have sung. You find that in Deborah's song too. But when we think about it, God accomplished a great victory when Christ was crucified. Our greatest enemy, Satan, that foe who in the garden is but a serpent, who by the book of Revelation we find he's become a dragon who's determined to destroy anything and everything that God's doing. Satan, he's become overbold, and he's gone after the very Son of God. He thought he is one. There he is. He's hanging on a Roman cross. He is bleeding out. His life is escaping him. You can imagine a certain celebration when the Roman soldier come and slides a spear into the side of our Savior. He is pierced for our iniquities. But Satan celebrating, I will conquer. I will defeat. I will raise and exalt myself to the level of God. But Satan was overbold. When he thought he had won all, when Jesus gave up his last in fact satan had lost it all because the second adam on the cross secured salvation for sinners yes life everlasting his work on the cross note this on the cross note this broke the power of sin over us Sin had absolute power over us. We had no power against sin. All we could do was, was sin. Every temptation come, we sin, we fail, we fall. We're in the power of sin. We were slaves to sin. But because of what Christ had accomplished, we no longer have to obey sin. We don't, we're not bound to Satan. 
He's defeated. It's, the Holy Spirit now lives in us. And as Paul says in Romans 8, 13, by the Spirit, we can put to death the deeds of the sin of sin that happened at the cross. When Satan's gloating and celebrating like the Israelites imagined the Egyptians were, Satan was defeated. I like to think of it this way. Satan never saw it coming. What God was doing was beyond the comprehension of man and even of the created angels. I think of the, the angels in heaven, those who obeyed God, the, the mystery and the wonder that God constrained them as his sons being crucified. And he spoke a word and they were constrained. They didn't come. They didn't rush. That's what Satan tempted Jesus with. Just speak the word and the Lord will send angels to deliver you. What God accomplished on the cross was God's plan. It was his mystery known to him alone. And indeed, the power of sin was broken. Satan never saw it coming. He was completely defeated. In the end, it says God told him it would be, you're only going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but he's going to crush your head. And so let all God's people go forth. My brothers and sisters, let us live day by day in the fullness of what Christ has accomplished. We have been set free from sin. Let us live our lives in the fullness of that salvation, living our lives for the glory of God and the victory that Christ has secured. And that brings us forth to land to sing to the Lord, to sing to the Lord of his uniqueness, verses 11 through 13. This song makes us shift at this point. Two questions are asked. They're rhetorical. Children, that means that uh, they're asked to make us think rather than to speak an answer. A rhetorical question works that way. Look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness? Well, the obvious answer is God. The first question makes the point that there is no other God like the Lord. He alone is God and there is no other. He has not just defeated all the gods of Egypt, Right? He has defeated their foe, the nation. None of the magicians could stand before him. No one could stop his plagues. Where, where were the gods of Egypt on the night when the destroying angel went throughout the land? God is the mighty God. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? If Israel, if we would only remember that day by day, the months that lie before them, if they could have remembered that, when they were wandering in the wilderness, when they needed water, when they needed bread, if they could have just remembered, their God is the Lord. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly what they ask or think. If we would remember these truths as well, I believe we would sin a lot less. We would not give way so quickly. The second question is, who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful, in praise, doing wonders. The Lord is holy. That means he is completely separate. He is completely unlike us. You know what one of the tendencies is of sinful humanity? And sometimes even as a redeemed people? Is to just think of God as like a greater man. Like a superman. We live in the days of the movies of these superheroes. And there's a temptation for us to think of God that way. God is holy. He is completely separated from us. He is unlike us. We are made in His image. He is not made in our image. God is the great God, unlike any other. It was the Lord who just stretched out his right hand, though he did not have one. We have that picture that he spoke, and there was a complete destruction of Egypt and how the earth had swallowed them up, as this song celebrates. This holy God is also abounding in mercy. Look at that. Verse 13. 
We've heard about his destruction, his great power. And then the Hebrews, as they celebrated, you in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Strong right hand, and yet a God who leads like a gentle shepherd, bringing his little ones out. We're going to close with the singing of this 23rd Psalm. Our God is a shepherd to his people. He's holy, and he's a terrifying God to his enemies, to his people. He's merciful, and he leads us, and he's gentle. He has redeemed us. He loves us. He guides us. And what does he do is he's guiding us to his holy habitation. You see that as we move on, the pillar of fire by day and the pillar of fire by night. God is bringing his people. He's leading them forth. Notice it's a promise. He's leading them forward. Look first then his, his, he, to the tabernacle that he will build, have built so that, they, that he dwells in their midst. And this will lead eventually to the building of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. But there's something more glorious than that. God's not leading us merely to a, a, a temple built with the hands of men. God is leading us to heaven. The Son of God came down from heaven, born of, of, of a woman, born of the virgin, made under the law, living in full obedience to the Father before God all his days. He was crucified bearing the sins of his people. Why? It's the great exodus, exodus verse 13, to your holy habitation there's this ultimate culmination in here something eschatological something that finds its fullness that god in his strength will bring us to his holy mountain where we will dwell with him forever and ever all that took place upon the earth in the land of israel and on mount zion and the building of the tabernacle of the temple all these things are pointing forward this is what jesus said in john 14 he says i'm going to prepare a place for you and if I'm going to prepare a place for you, then surely I will come back and gather you so that where I am, there you may be also. God is building us into his habitation. He has fastened in us as living stones. There is no other God like unto our God. That's what Jesus announced. John 14:6. so many of you know that. What did he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Well, verses 14 through 18, we see that the nation of Israel sings of the dread of the Lord that comes upon the nations. God had promised to Abraham that he would give a land to his children. And that promise is being filled. The events that took place in Egypt and in the crossing of the Reed Sea, they, they, they couldn't be contained. The word, the word of what happened spread. As we mentioned before, there's no Internet, there's no newspapers, but what had happened was so monumental. Egypt, Egypt's armies drowned. Egypt's slaves, a whole nation of people that went out free. It could not be contained, and the word spreads. And in this song, they're, they're singing and celebrating of that. Israel understood that the dread of their Lord was going to go out and spread and fall upon the nations. Their name, Philistia, Edom, Moab, Canaan. Look at verse, verse 16. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone. Till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over, whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in your mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own holy sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Again, you see an expansion on the tail end of verse 13. It's more specific. God is going to bring his people to a place where he dwells in their midst. And we are in that transition, drawing close to that reality. And when Christ comes, these words will be fulfilled. And we will be with our God, and he will dwell in our midst. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sun or moon or stars, because Christ will be the light of the nations. We will be who he inhabits. What a 
great and terrifying God who would work to bring his people home. My friends, God is still at work to bring his people home to him today. And the dread of the Lord should be upon the nations. And the reason it isn't, we could have to say, is that the church neglects to preach these things, to proclaim these things. We need to stop going around uh, fearful of what others think. We're, there are great spiritual warfare that's going on over things that people are being harmed and hurt because of the lies of the devil and the evil one. And we serve a great God. Let us speak the truth. Men are men and women are women. Little children are boys and girls, and they are always boys and girls. Parents, teach your children these things. Explain it to them now. And explain them about, about the greatness of their God so that they would know the right fear of the Lord. And that we would raise up a generation who goes forth proclaiming Christ and him crucified. That the dread should be on the nations. It took some years for these things to happen that are told here. It's really under King David that David overthrows and completes the overthrow and liberates the mountain of God that then he brings the Ark of the Covenant up and then his son builds the temple. That was the place of God's own choosing. We look at verse 18. We think of the great picture of all things. This is, a, this is one of those places where we have to say it's the already not yet. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Indeed, the Lord is reigning. But the fullness of that reign, when all his enemies by Christ's work are brought and made his footstool, that will be the full culmination. That day is surely coming. This, this, this event of the delivering of Israel out of Egypt really was in a sense, don't misunderstand me, it was, it was a small thing. It was a great thing for them, but in, in the whole scheme of God's plan of rescuing his people, it was but a small thing. The great thing happened at the cross. And the greatest thing of all is when that one who was hung on the cross and died, who rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father, when he comes again, he will come as a king with a host of heaven. And the dread of the Lord shall fall upon the enemies of God. And there will be no place for them to hide. As I've said before, they will cry out to the mountains, Fall on us! Hide us from the terror of this great and holy God. But the glorious promise to us is, The Lord shall reign forever and ever. And we shall be around him. He will reign in our midst. Is this not a most important message? God has defeated sin and Satan at the cross when Christ died. Is there a greater story? Is there anything that, that is more worthy of celebrating? He has secured our salvation so that we can spend all eternity with him. It is this death, his death, that opens the way then for the exodus for us to come back to God, back into full fellowship, communion with God, as it will be when Christ comes again. That's why Jesus promised, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come again. So what matters the most? Children, adults, all understand this. What matters the most is that you be united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone. All the benefits, all the blessings that he secured are yours when you're united to him. And it's accomplished by faith alone. Do you believe God's promise? Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Then you will be one of those living stones built into that glorious temple that God shall inhabit for all eternity. The fact remains, though, God is a dreadful God to meet apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, that's what will happen to many. And their whole eternity will be the reality of the dreadfulness of the wrath of a holy God on sinners. 
So the conclusion, the refrain, the truth is underscored by the refrain that declares once more what God has accomplished. Verse 19, it's where we began. The, horse and the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went in on dry land in the midst of the sea. It's celebrating that this, this one event, this one corridor, this one path was salvation for God's people and it was destruction for the enemies of God's people. And it led them to sing. How much more is this true of the cross of Christ? It is the one way of salvation. But for those who have rejected that one way of salvation, it will be for their eternal condemnation. We see then the women led by Miriam, Moses, and Aaron's sisters. She, she leads the women, women in singing and dancing in celebration of the Lord's destruction of their foes. Their refrain was the continual praise that God had triumphed of over his enemies. They sang, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider is thrown into the sea. That's, this, is, this is what's celebrated, the victory of God, God securing deliverance for his people. Just a word of instruction here. Miriam leading and the dancing recorded here are not normative for the worship of God. Very important you know, distinction here. What we see before us is not a worship service. It is a national celebration. Yes, you have the nation, the people of God, and they're really in that formation stage, and they are worshiping God as a nation. Some of the Psalms are that way too. They're not normative. So we're not here to celebrate by dancing before God or having women that would lead us in worship. This is not a text that supports that. But let us conclude with a probing question about the important matter of our hearts. I direct these applications to myself as well. As you know, I, I deal with a lot of pain every day. Some days I can be pretty discouraged and grumpy and impatient. I'm grieved by that. I confess it when I made mindful of it. My wife's a big help to that. You see, there's no need for this. Whatever the situation in your life, there's, there's no excuse for us to grumble and mumble around like the Israelites did because Christ has conquered my biggest enemy. He has conquered your biggest enemy. Jesus has prepared a home in heaven that someday he is coming to take us there. What is important right now is that by his grace, that I know it is sufficient for each day, that you know it is sufficient for what each day brings. He's filled us with the Holy Spirit so that we can be more than conquerors through the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth is Christ's victory, he has defeated our foes, should stir our hearts up, hearts up to sing and to celebrate every day. Does your heart overflow with thanksgiving that God has saved you from sin, that he has brought you out from under his wrath? Does your heart overflow? Do you recall these things? Indeed, this is part of being the body of Christ. This is why we need opportunities to gather for fellowship outside of worship, certainly in worship and other times that, that we encourage one another. Brother, how's it going? I'm downcast. Brother, Remember, Christ has triumphed over your foes. Rejoice in the victory that God has secured. Throw an arm around a brother or sister who's discouraged and pray together. This next week is the weekend is ending and Sunday is drawing around nigh. Get excited. Come into the house of the Lord. Pray that the Holy Spirit would fill your heart with joy and praise and celebration because Christ has already crushed your enemies. They are already defeated. He has already delivered you from hell through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I suspect that we can all acknowledge that there are things at times that get us excited to our shame more than God's so great salvation. Let us repent of these things. Rather, let us take up the great hymns of the church and let us hum them or sing them throughout the day. Let us learn to meditate on Jesus, not Taylor Swift's latest hit or politics or the headlines and the discouragements there or be thinking about the next episode of our favorite TV show. No, let us make the song of Zion our daily celebration. Let us sing and shout because Christ is King. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty God, we rejoice at this glorious picture of your triumph, literal, physical triumph over a great enemy, a a great and powerful nation with a great and powerful army, and yet in in an amazing and a marvelous, a, a completely unexpected way, you delivered your people and you destroyed their foes. And Lord, we rejoice because that points us to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there... You have secured our salvation, and you have defeated our foe. Indeed, his head is crushed. He has no power over us. Indeed, it is you who have power over us and in us, because you dwell in us. You've given us your Holy Spirit. Lord God, I pray for all of us, mindful of my own struggles and difficulties, hardships, we all have them, Lord, that we would remember Christ is King and He has won the victory. And Lord, help us to live and to celebrate this truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.